This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. AfriCrypt is a name you may not have heard before. As we reported in MoneyWeb this week, is it possible that a couple of virtual teenagers were behind a crypto investment scheme that was hacked and emptied of, wait for it, 54 billion rand? That's right. The Bitcoin addresses controlled by AfriCrypt have been emptied down to every last Satoshi. Brothers Reis and Amir Kaji, originally from Joburg, appear to have disappeared, as investors understandably want to know, where's my money? All this happened while we were busy paying attention to Mirror Trading International or MTI and the 23,000 Bitcoin it managed to disappear under CEO Johann Steinberg. The difference is that AfriCrypt was relatively low-key. It was almost a secret spreading by whispers amongst the illuminated who were introduced to this inner circle. It's an astonishing story. The CEO, Reis Kaji, was barely out of school when he started putting together a crypto investment company that offered monthly returns of 10% or more per month. MTI made similar promises, but its success was the result of a multi-level marketing scheme. What both schemes have in common is that the ringleaders have vanished. In MTI's case, CEO Johann Steinberg disappeared, apparently to Brazil, perhaps Panama, in December last year. And that was just as the scheme he helped create started to unravel. One person who's been taking an in-depth look at AfriCrypt is Darren Hanacom of Hanacom Attorneys. And we're going to get into what actually happened and how did it happen that two teenagers managed to make off with 54 billion rand, if indeed they did. Welcome, Darren. Give us some of the background to your involvement on this. How did you start looking into AfriCrypt? Thank you, Kieran. With regards to AfriCrypt as, as an entity in South Africa, we first became involved by way of, of another client in the industry who uh, sought to do business uh, with the brothers. And this would have been uh, many months ago. So we advise clients in the retail, institutional, and arbitrage crypto space, as well as the regulatory and compliance space. So he thought it was a good idea that he approached us just to do a bit of uh, looking into the business operation as to whether this could be a viable collaboration for them. During the initial stages of the of the deal, there were certain questions uh, that we raised that we highlighted regarding the presentation or investor profile presentation that they gave. And it was the basic questions that uh, that they really struggled and um, to the extent that the, the collaboration didn't go through and the client just left it as it was. And it was a few months after that uh, that he came back to me and he said, Darren, those guys that we looked into before, this is what has happened. So you were actually asked to have a look into these two guys. There was a, a talk of collaboration. You were doing some sort of due diligence on them. And before you could turn around, basically the money had disappeared. They somehow got involved in the scheme and the money had disappeared. Is that what happened? So before the, the deal could go through, so this would have been at least two, three months before the purported hack. Our clients never really heard from them again. Um, but their business continued, just that they didn't pursue this particular venture. Perhaps they didn't like the questions that were being asked. So they continued their business uh, up until early April uh, when the purported hack occurred. So uh, nonetheless, um, our client was quite pleased that he wasn't exposed uh, to this um, to this entity. What a close call. Okay, many people find it almost impossible to believe that a couple of kids could pull off something like this. And the figure of 54 billion rand in Bitcoin seems a stretch too far for, for some people. 
How did you come to this figure? You actually know how to work your way around a blockchain. So you did some investigative research and you came up with this figure. Explain the, the process behind that. So with regards to the Africa um, wallets and the assets or purported assets under management was always presented to potential investors or institutional partners was the fact that they had, uh, and this would have been mid last year, $500 million under management. And uh, when I first saw that number initially, uh, I, uh, I was quite skeptical at first. And so that was the background uh, in respect of, of what prompted us to, to look a bit further when clients uh, did approach us to, to look into this. So the, the way in which we started was really just looking at understanding how clients were firstly onboarded. Uh, was this a standard process? Was this an automated process? Was it a manual process? So from what we received from the clients in respect of their uh, insights is that it was largely a manual process uh, and already then uh, an entity of this um, purported caliber ought to have had some sort of aut uh, autonomous uh, back-end uh, capabilities and already the fact that that wasn't there, that the CEO and chief operating officers were manually receiving funds and then manually purchasing these coins and then uh, allocating them to client uh, sub-accounts was already something uh, that was a bit uh, suspicious for us. Um, we requested clients to send us their wallet addresses. Some clients uh, were in possession of wallet addresses, some uh, were not. And the, the way in which the clients would receive these wallet addresses is that if they deposited funds, they would then receive an email from either Raiz or Amir or some hours later receive an email confirming that they received the funds in their bank account, uh, their funds denominated in advance, and they would then be shown a wallet address with uh, appropriate and, and corresponding Bitcoin uh, or Ethereum or Bitcoin Cash from what, we, what, what we've seen. So... This was not um, standard across uh, all clients. Not all clients receive their actual addresses. So we started looking at uh, the addresses regarding the sub-accounts uh, because what is um, difficult when, when it comes to analyzing blockchain is that the beneficial owner is never clear. When you see a wallet address, it could be uh, an exchange address. It could be address linked to uh, hot wallets. Uh, could be addresses linked to, to cold storage wallets somewhere else in the world. So one always needs to be careful when dealing with these addresses. So what we did was we started looking at the... Uh, Sorry, just to interrupt addresses. you there quickly, Darren, just to interrupt you so that people understand what we're talking about. A hot wallet is one that's connected to the internet. Cold wallet is one which is disconnected from the internet. So it could be a flash right. drive or it could be a hard drive, but it's not connected mm. to the internet. Right. Okay, so there was a mix of these different types of wallets, these addresses. Some of them were hot, some of them were cold. So what we did was we, we looked at the addresses and, and really started tying up the narrative when it came to clients saying, you know what, we stopped receiving statements in, in November last year. And we always struggled to get a, a breakdown of what exactly we have. When we looked at certain addresses, we could see that the reason why clients had difficulty in um, getting statements is because the initial coins that were, that were showing, shown to them was no longer in those wallets. 
it was sent out. It was no longer in the client's uh, wallet. Uh, we understand that different platforms have different uh, wallet management tools, but what was clear is that the addresses that these wallets went to were also very suspicious in itself when it comes to the kind of um, activity flagged uh, and associated with those addresses. So how we came up with, the, or how we derived the, the, the figure was looking at the pooled account that these corresponding client wallets, where all those funds were going, and then looking at what happened in April to see whether uh, we can deduce any hack or, or see evidence of a hack relating to the time frame that was given. And what we what we saw was that there was a matter of there was a, a various day of, of transactions, what we believe to be the, the pooled account over about a day, a few hours um, at the very least, where those coins were then sent out. And the way in which it was sent out was designed for it to um, hide the, the ultimate beneficial ownership or ultimate uh, ending or, or destination in that the, the, the outgoing transactions were so a million rand would be broken down into thousand rand increments. And you can imagine then how many uh, transactions were outgoing. And then from that address, that the, 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 the coins were either joined again or broken up again uh, to leave to another source. So to find one million, you will basically have to look at each of those addresses and manually go through and track each of those. So what we did was we looked at the total, the total pool, uh, and aligned it with the time uh, at which he said the hack took place, and thereafter uh, deduce that amount. And what we do know is that at the end of the day, it is an exercise that requires a great deal of of expertise, and there are people that are, are very well of faith with that exercise, and we've now aligned ourselves with the right individuals with the expertise to be able to to locate the the final destination of those those addresses right i mean i'm looking at one of the addresses here in fact you sent it to me uh, i see that there's 71000 bitcoin was transferred into this address and exactly the same amount 71000 was transferred out shortly thereafter in 1,176 transactions, that's basically, we're talking there, that's about $2 million per transaction. The question then arises is, how do these, these figures come? And people are saying, this is unbelievable. There's not this much money floating around in South Africa. So was this a money laundering operation? You know, was there mobster money in this? Was there Gupta money in this? Uh, what, what is it? What's your take? So, I mean, right now it's only speculation as to whose money this belongs to. What we are beginning to, to see is that the South African component made up a comparatively small portion of, of what we believe was the, the total uh, asset under, uh, assets under management. That some of the addresses, if you compare it to the registration of the business, the business was registered in 2019, and that aligns more or less when some of these um, addresses started to have activity. And some of the addresses had tens of, of millions of, of dollars, um, some even hundreds of millions of dollars within the first few weeks of the business opening. And thereafter, 
uh, we believe that the South African investor pool started to increase. So it could very well be that this was not their first rodeo, uh, that this activity in South Africa was largely uh, potentially used as a front for something else. And what was the modus operandi here? So there were people that we know that were approached, and, and you've been some of your clients were approached and asked to invest in this thing, and they, they were being promised returns of 10, 11% per month, very similar to Mirror Trading International. But it seems this was a small part of a much bigger picture. What was the modus operandi? How did they approach? Um, you know, I was contacted yesterday by somebody from the UK who was approached by the Kaji brothers when they were, you know, literally teenagers in school. And uh, and he handed over 50,000, which he, he never saw again, he told me. So it's, it's a combination of, of, of a few things. We do uh, believe that they were well-placed. They were well-connected individuals. Uh, they were able to leverage uh, connections in South Africa and internationally. Uh, they were able to create, the, uh, at least at the face of it, a, uh, a lifestyle uh, that was uh, affluent and, and a lifestyle that was uh, was lived across many different jurisdictions. So, so at the face of it, they appeared to be uh, individuals who uh, were 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 well resourced when it when it came to the sort of material things uh, that people might associate with success. They made sure that they had those things. Um, so so that was the initial sort of of, of, of un, unspoken uh, sales that they would do in the spirit of of creating that sort of persona for themselves. Right. So posting pictures of their their Lamborghinis and and all that kind of thing and affluent lifestyle that that always creates the the right atmosphere the right ambiance that people think well i'm definitely talking to the right guys here if they're making this kind of money but what is fascinating is that this happened while everybody's focused on mirror trading international which was big because that involved hundreds of thousands of people all around the world this seems to be a much smaller more discreet type of thing it was really by word of mouth as i said in the beginning it was done by whispers and people almost kept this as a secret to themselves right yes so that was also uh, a way in which they were possibly able to accumulate uh, the funds um, in that they relied on on people with credibility and they relied on entities um, that people would um, seemingly trust and they made sure that the people that they associated with uh, were people with um, further connections uh, and, and further networks which could be used uh, to further their respective causes. So it would never be a, they wouldn't, it wasn't a cold calling exercise. Uh, it was people who uh, were already successful, be it in business, uh, that they would then use um, to get, tap into their respective networks. And they were trusted people within their trusted uh, spaces uh, that they were able to then take advantage of. Is there any evidence that there was a trading algorithm involved here? Because this was the, the lure. This was the thing that they were telling people was their magic source. This was the thing that was going to make them rich. They got this trading algorithm that never loses. And in fact, on their investor presentation, there's a, they, they show the returns over 12 months, depending on whether you went for a, uh, a conservative or a less conservative or more aggressive portfolio. You make anything between 2 and 11% per month. Any evidence that there was a trading algorithm here? No evidence at all. And 
That's something that was also quite telling. Traditionally, when clients are engaged with platforms, be it uh, traditional platforms in the derivative space, uh, they would receive a statement which shows their respective uh, trades and the net profits or, or net losses of those positions and when those positions were taken, uh, the size, uh, the duration of the trades and all the rest. And that wouldn't be unusual for clients to receive that kind of information. Um, in this case, clients never saw or received anything uh, which indicated that any trading was in fact uh, going on. Uh, there was no evidence of any sort of, of, of trading or any sort of algorithm that was used because no one was privy to that information other than uh, Raiz or Amir. Right. And on that subject, is there any evidence that Raiz was a computer expert as he claimed to be and that he was already wealthy in his teens as a result of Ethereum mining? Yeah, so we've spoken to some investors and that is also... The, the interesting component in that before the business uh, was established in 2019, they've already marketed themselves as, as, as experts in, in this field of computer programming and mining. And just the time frame and the chronology of, of events regarding uh, where they place themselves, not just in the Bitcoin chronology, but also in the Ethereum uh, chronology. I mean, the Ethereum as a network was only uh, launched to the mainstream in 2015. Um, so for them to place themselves uh, at a, as early adopters and to state to certain uh, investors that they mined 100,000 coins uh, a month, we don't believe what? that that would have been possible uh, with the technology that a month, yes. Or that they uh, accumulated 100,000 uh, coins during the, uh, the, the period of, of mining. And we don't believe that that would have been possible, especially if they are also saying that they come from humble beginnings and they started this in, in, their, in their family home. Uh, we don't see that there would have been the computing power necessary to generate that amount of coins within that particular time frame. So that was always the question that, that we had for investors as to where did the money come from? Because everyone said that they purported to have been very successful before, um, but there's been varied sources and, and, and varied narratives as to, as to what the origins of the initial uh, funding or where that came from. Um, so they purport themselves to be AI uh, experts and machine learning experts, but beyond using those words, there was no any sort of evidence. There was no white paper produced online to show uh, this is the kind of um, things that they built before. There was no evidence to actually show uh, that these guys were active in the space with regards to developing or programming or, or coding anything new that could have um, um, produced the kind of, 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 of capital that they say that they had. I believe that there is an attempt to liquidate the company. Do we know anything about that? So, yes, uh, with regards to the liquidation proceedings, it was launched in, in, in April. Um, uh, and the, from what we understand, a provisional order for liquidation has been, uh, has been made. But unfortunately, uh, the appointed liquidators have yet to commence their activities uh, or commence any further investigation uh, with regards to their mandates. There is a return date in July, and we are now assisting investors in participating uh, in those proceedings. Uh, and we've also aligned ourselves with liquidators 
who have extensive experience, experience drawn from, from MTI. So those lessons uh, will be leveraged in the respect of using those skills and using those tracking abilities in this matter. So we do see that there will be a massive benefit for investors at large. Do we know who brought the liquidation application in the case of AfriCrypt? We do know it was one of the, there is a, an investor. Uh, was just one of the, the investors in Africa who, who brought the proceedings on a on an urgent basis. So it was a single investor, was it? Yes, yes. So from what we can draw from the papers, it was a single investor, but we've yet to, to see any opposition. It does seem to have been largely unopposed. Uh, they would have been notified. They would have, uh, the, the Kaji brothers would have received indication of, of these proceedings and uh, they've elected not to intervene. Uh, there's been no participation. There's been no opposing papers that we are aware of. There's been no media announcements. There's been no uh, letters sent to clients beyond uh, what was sent to them um, after the act. So uh, the letter from the CEO, I believe, alluded to the fact that uh, they were doing everything in their power to recover these funds. They were uh, looking to um, to investigate the hack and, and do as much as they, they, they could to, to give this, to, to find these, uh, these perpetrators. However, we don't see it in, the, in any of the, the actions after that. It's complete radio silence, and that's, uh, right. that's a troubling thing. Yes, yeah, so they, they sent out this message saying, I think it was on the, the 16th or so of April, we've been hacked, uh, we're doing everything in our power to recover this, please don't contact the authorities because that might, uh, you know, that might frustrate any attempts that we make to recover this money and then all of a sudden radio silence from there on out. Now, this is a point that you made, you, you're very suspicious about this hack, you, you think there's something more going on here. One of the reasons you're suspicious is A, the Kaji brothers have disappeared, right? They, they're, they're not to be found. And the second thing is that one of the addresses used, one of the addresses discovered attached to AfriCrypt that was used by the hackers was used previously before there was a hack, which indicates, you know, that there was a normal business relationship between these two addresses. Explain that to people so that we can understand it. So with regards to the hack, uh, the, as you described, um, what the entirety of what was told was contained in the four corners of that letter uh, that was conveyed to, to investors. And the letter, unfortunately, did not uh, convey or instill much confidence uh, uh, once investors received that for some of the points that you've raised in respect of the request not to reach out to law enforcement. That was something which we found concerning in that these sort of, of hacks or these sort of compromising activities uh, does happen in the space, and we've seen uh, certain global exchanges uh, deal with it uh, in, in another kind of way. Uh, and the usual way of, of investors who would receive this information, it would be one that conveys a continued narrative and an up-to-date correspondence as to the development and progress made, case numbers that, that were opened, and efforts to comfort investors in this very difficult time. Uh, and that was not done. And it, it does seem as though the letter looks to actually protect something. And what it to protect was um, the from law enforcement intervening uh, and that law enforcement would, would slow this down. Um, that was concerning for us. Uh, with regards to the hack itself, the hack would have needed to happen on 
multiple levels. A, a hacker would have needed to compromise their, um, their, their hosting service together with their um, trading platform, the front end, the back end, uh, as well as the, the crypto wallets, the main wallets together with the sub wallets. And we don't see that a five layered hack uh, would have been uh, the, the, the possible way of doing this because anyone uh, or any hack of a system is usually just a leaking of the keys that someone has been able to get hold of the private keys. Perhaps it wasn't stored properly or perhaps it was um, it was siphoned from a, from an email. Um, but that's not what was said. They make mention to uh, nodes that were compromised and the website. But what we do know is that the website itself is far removed from the wallet and the blockchain. And the value that the blockchain has is that it's decentralized and that uh, it would have needed to have compromised the blockchain itself. And to this day, I'm not aware of, of anyone ever being able to, to hack into the blockchain outside of having access to the keys or the passwords. Uh, so we found that explanation highly uh, improbable. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make is that, um, you know, the hack of the blockchain is almost impossible because it is so, it, it exists on tens of thousands of computers. You'd have to do this simultaneously. It has never been done successfully to the best of my knowledge. Um, so the way that you would have to do it is, you're right, you would have to sort of attack the, the specific wallets, get through the hosting services, and then get through the there's the specific specific platform that they're using to the wallets. Even that sounds like an impossibility to most people, unless it's an inside job. Unless it's an inside job. In which case it takes, you know, minutes. So with regards to the outgoing transactions, and it was, and if it, it happened over a few hours, um, and if any, if they had any sort of, of security measures in place, one would think that they would have noticed um, at least within the first hour. Uh, and for, I mean, were they not checking these systems during the day? Was no one working? Was, I mean, I don't understand how anyone would have um, not been alerted uh, within, within minutes or seconds of any security breach. Okay, now you're a lawyer. How did you get so that you could interrogate the blockchain the way that you have done? Uh, or do you have skills inside or outside the company that you can call on when it comes to investigating blockchain-type uh, scenarios like this? So so our interest in, in the cryptocurrency and, and the virtual asset space uh, really started from a compliance uh, perspective initially, uh, as well as um, we are uh, advocates in the space when it comes to uh, the different kinds of, of technologies and innovations in the space. And it was really from there that we've, we've started looking at the white papers. We started looking at not just the blockchain, uh, but other uh, elements of uh, the decentralized finance space. And it's really a space that we are involved in every single day. Our clients uh, have a day of different businesses in the space. And it invariably um, was something that is, is of interest to us when it comes to uh, the possibility of, of having a system that is almost anonymous, but it's, it's, it's not in entirety, but uh, the possibility of having a system that you could actually follow these transactions. And it really started, my interest really started in, in the 
the space of, of various online communities looking at previous um, scams. And we've seen some varied kinds of, of scams that, that people would have in the past. And it really started um, from, from looking at scammers' wallets. And what's fascinating is that there would be reports of people being hacked and they are able to show, look, this is the scammer. This is where my money is. And you can see it on the blockchain. And mm. there was a particular crypto, a few, I think it must have been last year sometime. What the hackers would, would do is they would be on the Reddit. And if someone is on the, the platform and they have a, a problem, they would post a comment asking the particular project if they have a question or query. And the hackers or, or the, the cyber criminals would then respond to these people and say, oh, let us help you. Um, solve your problem every time uh, to reset your wallet and all this and other. Please reset your wallet, uh, input your private keys, but use this address. And they would mimic uh, the addresses where, which they would then uh, input their private keys and send the coins to and siphon it off from there. Uh, yeah. And once again, it was fascinating and concerning to have individuals say, I can, so imagine being able to look at your stolen money <laughs> and you can see it there and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing and, you can do about uh, it, yeah. It is fascinating. Of course, you can put, uh, you know, markers, you can alert the authorities and the exchanges about these, these wallets so that any movement out of that wallet can be in intercepted. But the only way you can really intercept it, I guess, is when it comes onto an exchange for sale. As far yes. as I know, the only thing they can do is block it. But then you need law enforcement people to come in and, uh, and basically make arrests for, for you to get your crypto back again. Is that what happens? Yeah, so especially scams of, of this magnitude, these guys often don't want to hold uh, Bitcoin. Uh, so the chances of people analyzing the, the blockchain, you could be looking at addresses of someone who was a bona fide purchaser of those coins because they converted into another coin and they are on another network entirely. Uh, so that is what we uh, suspect uh, might have already happened, that they're no longer even sitting with uh, Bitcoin. It's most likely another uh, another coin that they were, that would be um, highly liquid. But for them to be able to retrieve the spoils of the of the efforts, they would need to uh, do it through an uh, entity with uh, large pools of liquidity in order to, to match those orders. Um, so they wouldn't be able to, to move that kind of funds off of small exchanges. They would need to approach the bigger houses uh, to, to actually withdraw those, those funds into, into fiat. And the difficult uh, component is that the cryptocurrency space, when it comes to the KYC uh, element, uh, has not yet been fully standardized across the world. So there are still some exchanges um, that operate in, in certain jurisdictions, but you don't need KYC at all. Um, yeah. So that also then prompted the Financial Action Task Force to bring in what's called the travel rule uh, to start to mandate exchanges to um, share and create a repository of, of information, not just of, of, of owners of these wallets, but also the monitoring of, trans of outgoing and incoming transactions. So that is all good and well, but there also exists the peer-to-peer -peer trading network where people don't necessarily need exchanges. Uh, they could do these uh, transactions in uh, a way that's called over-the-counter OTC uh, transactions, whereby 
they run these transactions outside of the traditional uh, exchanges or the books. So there's yeah. a, an entire ecosystem <laughs> that, 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 that exists. Uh, and if um, certain individuals know how to navigate their way around it, um, it could be highly profitable for them. Yeah. Okay, so it certainly does look like this, uh, you know, when you've got 71,000 Bitcoin appearing in one single address, a couple of teenagers which appear to have been behind this, it seems almost impossible. 71,000 Bitcoin being about $2.4 billion. Um, and there are more addresses. And, and that's another question. Do we know, in fact, if, is this the full extent of the hack uh, or is there more? So, so that, I mean, right now, um, this is still uh, the preliminary stages of, of, of this uh, kind of, of investigation. And there will be um, efforts uh, required from, from various sources and various experts uh, when it comes to analyzing uh, these kinds of, of transactions and, and, and what its possible link is uh, to other uh, related scams. Um, from what we've seen in the past, uh, we, we don't think that it's, um, it's completely unimaginable when it comes to this amount of coins. We've seen um, scammers addresses also in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And these were scammers who, who, who siphoned money from people for edit sitting on a hundred odd million dollars. Uh, so it's not uh, something that is, is out in the open. It, and it's also not something that people would openly want to admit. And that's also the difficult thing um, in that people firstly are embarrassed um, that they were, were duped by someone and that they, in retrospect, probably justified all the red flags that might have uh, been raised uh, in the early days. Uh, and the difficulty is that they don't have much recourse in traditional law enforcement at the moment. Uh, so one does need to be very careful. And if anything, uh, this kind of, of, of matter uh, should be a, um, a warning to consumers when it comes to informing themselves uh, and, and equipping themselves with the necessary skills that they could purchase these, these coins without the need to, to, to pay uh, anyone exorbitant fees, that this technology is, was designed that way, um, that it doesn't need a, a third party. Uh, it's a trustless system. So the more people inform themselves, the better the system will become. That's right. A trustless system, basically meaning, you know, once you've sent the Bitcoin, it's gone. You can look at it on the blockchain all you want. You can be standing behind the glass looking just two inches away from your own Bitcoin, but you do not have control of it. That is what a trustless system is. That deal is done. That transaction is passed, um, which, of course, makes it very attractive for, for, for scamsters. You know, people, uh, you know, there, there's, there's no bank that's going to refund you your money and intercept it and stop it and reverse it. Um, we're, we're in a whole new world here. Uh, it's got great benefits, but it has risks as well. Darren, final question. What impact do you think this AfriCrypt story will have on South Africa's reputation as a financial center? Well, I think South Africa is largely, um, before this matter was already, uh, unfortunately, ranked uh, among the top four countries in the world when it comes to illicit um, crypto activities. Uh, and that's according to um, the February 2021 uh, chain analysis report. So, uh, unfortunately, South Africa uh, did have a, a lot of work to do uh, before uh, this, um, this uh, 
Latin for this hack. Um, but it does, um, it does inform uh, the public uh, when it comes to uh, the, 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 for, for them to actually be a bit more reluctant to handing over their, their respective funds. And when it comes to the technology, uh, we have some data exchanges in South Africa. We have some top uh, projects that's globally ranked um, that have its origins in South Africa. And it's a space, especially given the unbanked um, community, um, that has a lot of potential. Um, and it is unfortunate uh, that, that these sorts of things happen, um, but it's not uh, entirely uh, associated with cryptos because um, scams happen in traditional currency every day. Uh, so it's just a matter of, of equipping um, the South African um, consumer base uh, with the necessary protective uh, mechanisms to ensure that there is uh, recourse uh, when it comes to um, certain entry points into the cryptocurrency industry. Right, and of course, regulations very much needed. Uh, they are coming, but um, that's not going to happen overnight because there are a lot of regulations that have to be changed. But I think it will give people a baseline. It's not going to eliminate this type of thing, but it will certainly make it more difficult. Darren, we're, gonna, we're out of time. We're going to leave it there. Fascinating discussion. Thanks very much for coming on. Uh, this is a rolling story. We're going to be covering it some more, so no doubt we'll be speaking into the future. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.